Good afternoon. This is indeed Hooting Yard on the air. My name is Frank Key. It's the show that someone said to me is a fool's paradise, but I'm not sure what they meant by that. Um, I'm going to read to you for half an hour. Now, they're small, green, solid, edible spheres, and you eke them from pods. I'm talking about peas, of course. Let's sing their praises, or if not sing, at least say a rhyme. At the dinner tables of Hooting Yard, there's a food we hold in high regard. Oh, I wonder what can it be? It's the little green edible sphere called the pea. The shelling of peas has long been recognised as a therapeutic activity on a par with pig observation. Some doctors of the brain recommend that neurasthenic patients should spend an hour each day shelling peas and another hour leaning over the fence of a sty watching pigs. The experimental psychiatrist Tarpin Poltro suggested doing both at the same time, with results that have been hotly debated ever since. It was Poltro's student PK Spaceman who coined the term PQ for P-quotient. Your PQ is easily calculated. Take the number of peas you have eaten in your lifetime and divide it by your age. This figure can be plotted on a grid against, for example, your body mass index, rotundity of head, shoe size and various phrenological data. Dr Spaceman was fond of citing Lloyd George's view that Neville Chamberlain had a, quote, wrong-shaped head, and put this down to a lack of peas in the latter's diet. Sometimes he attributed to it... Sometimes he attributed it... You know, that's really hard to say. I'm going to try again. Sometimes he attributed it to a lack of peas in the former's diet, too. Sorry about that. Anyway, in desperate circumstances, for example when one's life is at risk, peas can become useful tools, or at least adjuncts to tools. There is the story of the Antarctic explorer clinging by his frost-bitten fingertips to the edge of a crevasse down which he was about to plunge, who managed to clamber up onto the ice by fashioning a harness using ribbons, elastic bands and frozen peas. The out-of-print pamphleteer Dobson once planned to write an encyclopaedia of pea varieties and pea recipes, but he abandoned the project after cracking his shin bone on a metal drum. The drum had been left directly outside his front door by a peripatetic person who ought to have been shelling peas and observing pigs, for this person could say, as Stanley Baldwin did, my inside is a mess of cold, rumbling fluidity. My brain is costive. Faith is dying. Hope is dead. So miserable was this travelling drum person that he could no longer bear to carry his drum from place to place, and so, with a sigh like a dying wind, he unhitched it from his back and placed it in Dobson's driveway. Then he rolled it as far as the front door and scribbled a note on the wrapper of a toffee apple, weighted the note on the drum with a pebble and trudged away to begin his life anew as the man of bandages. You might be wondering what the note said. It was simple enough. 
I can no longer carry my metal drum from place to place. Keep it or discard it. I care not a jot, it read. As we have seen, upon discovering the drum, Dobson's first act was neither to keep nor to discard it, but to bang his leg against it with such force that he almost broke the bone of the shin of his right leg. Why did Dobson's leg meet the cold, hard edge of the metal drum with such force? Because Dobson was charging out of his house at high speed, so fast that he would have appeared to any passer-by as a mere blur, like the comic book character Billy Whiz. Dobson was normally slow and even lumbering of gait. On what account was he in such a hurry? Always a man with an eye for a bargain, Dobson had just received a message on his metal tapping machine telling him that in a marquee tent pitched in a field beyond Pang Hill, a mountebank was selling many peas at prices that were described as insane. Given that he was thinking hard about his planned pea book, this seemed an opportunity too good to miss. Hence the way in which he jumped up from his escritoire, sending his chair clattering behind him, kicked off his toofles with vim, enwrapped himself in his big black coat, stuck his feet into a pair of Canadian Forestry Service boots and whizzed out of his front door. His momentum was at this point brought to a shocking halt by the unexpected metal drum blocking his path. Making contact with it, Dobson howled. Many people in the vicinity said later that they thought what they heard was a dog being clubbed by a brute, a la Bill Sykes in Oliver Twist, as played by the late Oliver Reed in the film version of Lionel Bart's musical Oliver. Persistent rumours that Lionel Bart intended to follow this with a setting of another Victorian literary gem, Gerard Manley Hopkins' poem The Wreck of the Deutschland, entitled The Tall Nun, are unfounded. Did Dobson read the note left by the peripatetic person who had abandoned the metal drum? No, he did not. Nor, once his shin wound was anointed with unguents and wrapped in a bandage, did he go to the marquee tent in the field to buy peas from a mountebank at insane prices. Had he done so, he would have discovered that the insanity of the prices lay not in their cheapness, but conversely in the fact that each individual pea was on sale for a sum so staggeringly expensive that it beggared belief. Many historians of the social scene have pondered the motives of the mountebank, who was not trying to pretend there was anything special about the peas he had for sale. Indeed, his patter, if we can call it that, consisted of the repeated phrase, "'Come hither and buy yourself a pea at an insanely expensive price, townspeople,' shouted in an accent difficult to pin down, and shouted repeatedly throughout the long afternoon as clouds scudded across the sky and birds sang and the planets span in space millions of miles away.'" Peas have been compared with planets, sometimes, by poets. The author of the song we heard at the beginning of this piece wrote other pea-related verses, in one of which he takes each planet in turn, using the mnemonic, 
mud, vinegar, ectoplasm, moorhens, jasper, straubenzee, unspeakable, Nixon, popinjay, and contemplates them as peas in a pod, not yet shelled by one of Dr. Spaceman's wild-eyed, brain-sick patients. There is no mention of pigs in the poem. Make of that what you will. Yesterday, um, the Booker Prize was announced, wasn't it? Which makes this, the, or the Man Booker Prize. It always surprises me that none of the authors ever refuse to accept Man Booker's money, them being a kind of sinister financial institution. Um, anyway, that being said, here is a pertinent quotation. This is from a, a 19th century book entitled The Ladies' Vase, um, by an, an anonymous author known only as an American woman. If you wish to become weak-headed, nervous and good-for-nothing, read novels. I have seen an account of a young lady who had become so nervous and excitable in consequence of reading novels that her head would be turned by the least appearance of danger, real or imaginary. As she was riding in a carriage over a bridge in company with her mother and sister, she became frightened at some fancied danger, caught hold of the reins and backed the carriage off the bridge, down a precipice, dashing them to pieces. So that's what happens if you read novels. One novel you might read is The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. Um, and this next piece is called The Magic Mountain, but you'll be pleased to hear that it's not a complete recitation of that novel. Um, it just shares a title with it. The Magic Mountain. Some listeners will be familiar with the career of the Sino-Dutch artist R. Fang van der Hugendorp, the man who invented potato peel en gravure. Few people know, however, that he was a keen mountaineer. Keen and inept, that is. Ah Fang was, if nothing else, a visionary, and he had visions of a haunted mountain, its peak shrouded in inexplicable purple mists, like something out of a novel by M.P. Scheele. Whenever he sat shivering in his tent at base camp, Ah Fang wondered if this mountain, the one he was about to climb, was the haunted mountain of his mind's eye. He would poke his head out of the frayed flap of his tent, peer up at the majestic rock formation disappearing into the clouds above, and wonder if this, at last, would be the one he had dreamed of since childhood where he would come face to face with the uncanny and the ineffable. 
Physically, Arthang was not really cut out for mountaineering. He was described by a contemporary as a figure of untold puniness, and he was indeed tiny and weak, short-sighted, lanky and prone to swooning fits. He was terrified of gnats, horseflies and fruit bats. He had an oversensitive digestive system and had to subsist mostly on thin soup or broth. It was difficult to find a mountaineering team willing to recruit so wretched a specimen, so Ah Fang did most of his clambering up sheer rock faces solo, a man alone testing himself against the elements. What he lacked in physical prowess, Ah Fang made up for with a genius for publicity. Each time he descended from some pitiless escarpment, battered, bruised, hallucinating, and in the last stages of exhaustion, the puny alpinist would hold a press conference. At one of these, in 1929, he was questioned closely by Dobson. No one is quite sure what in heaven's name Dobson was doing, hanging about in the foothills of the giant, terrifying mountains of Tantarabim at the time. We know from the journals of Marigold Chu that Dobson was at work on a series of pamphlets about glue, breadcrumbs and the composer William Hurlstone, 1876-1906, whose bassoon sonata made him weep and that he collected the tears in what he called his hurlstone bucket. It is beyond doubt, however, that Dobson bustled through the entrance flap of Arfang van der Hugendorp's tent within minutes of the mountaineer's return from the jagged heights of giant terrifying mountain number eight, the most challenging of the peaks in the Tantarabim range. The transcript of their conversation has been preserved. Ah, Fang, welcome to my press conference. Dobson, with all due respect, you look very puny for a mountaineer. Ah, Fang, I have seen things up in yon mists and clouds that no human being has ever seen. I want you to tell the world. Dobson, the lenses of your spectacles are extremely thick, and what I know of the ocular sciences would suggest to me that you are myopic, added to which they are steamed up. Your claim to have seen anything at all, let alone something of great import, is, frankly, somewhat dubious. Ah, Fang. Frankly dubious it may well be, O oh person with notebook and pencil, but I know whereof I speak, for I was upon that mighty peak engulfed in mists, and you were not. Dobson. That's true enough. An hour ago I was sitting in one of the huts in these foothills eating porridge. I fled the hut when I saw three bears approaching. I did not know bears roamed these foothills. Were there more bears up on the mountain? Ah, Fang. Yes, there were bears up there, and there were other things beginning with B. Dobson. What were those things beginning with B? Ah, Fang. I could prattle a list of nouns beginning with B, pamphlet person, and you would scuttle away happy. But of greater import is the sort of general mental impression I gained within the mist, an impression which impinged upon my brain in a manner that can only be described as uncanny and redoubtable. 
for I have witnessed that which I knew from infancy awaited me. Even as a tiny tot, I was aware that in some broiling high-altitude mist, I would come upon the elixir of glory. Dobson. Let me stop you there, puny mountaineer. I need to sharpen my pencil. Do you have a pencil sharpener? Ah, Fang. Let me look in my voluminous kit bag. Dobson. Thank you. While you rummage, I'm going to hike up the mountain myself to add credence to your witterings. The transcript ends there. For the rest of his life, Dobson never spoke of what he found at the top of that mystic and magical mountain. If asked, he would stare balefully into the distance as if entranced. But he did write an account of what he found when he returned to Ah Fang's base camp. It appears as a lengthy footnote in his out-of-print pamphlet He Who Plucks the Strings of a Banjo in Wintry Wintry Weather. And it reads as follows. When I descended from giant terrifying mountain number eight, I expected to find puny alpinist Arfang van der Hugendorp awaiting me with a pencil sharpener in his frost-bitten hand. I even thought he may have sharpened my pencil for me in my absence, as an act of beneficence. I was in a reflective mood, whistling William Hurlstone's Snow White's Death Sleep from The Magic Mirror, as I trudged towards the tent. There were grim, huge-winged birds circling overhead, and I gripped harder the piece of putty in my pocket. Bustling through the flap, as I always bustle through tent flaps, I found no trace of Ah Fang, nor of my pencil. The man had vanished with his kit bag, his pencil sharpener, and, I adduced, he had acted like a common thief by taking my pencil with him. I had lost track of time up on the mountain, so I could not guess how long he had been gone. I wondered if, puny as he was, he had been waylaid by the bears who roam those ill-starred foothills, and I half expected to find a pile of chewed bones as I made my sad way to the railway station along the luminous painted footpaths. But I saw no bones, no bears, Nothing at all beginning with B in all the hours it took me to plod away from that weird, unwelcoming place. I never saw Arfang van der Hugendorp again, but a year later I learned that he was a passenger aboard the airship the LZ-129 Hindenburg, which exploded in flames while approaching a mooring mast at Lakehurst Naval Air Station in the state of New Jersey in the United States of America. I often find myself wondering if the stub of my pencil was aboard that doomed airship. something else now. Occasionally, if you observe closely, it's possible to watch a crisis developing in a clump of sedge. 
On any given day, the crisis may involve sedge warblers, a type of bird, but it's unlikely to match the features of any of the six crises examined by Richard Milhouse Nixon in his 1962 book of that title. Sedge crises tend to be riverbanky by definition, so in addition to the aforementioned sedge warblers, one may also find that otters, frogs or hand-carved wooden decoy ducks are involved. In the case of frogs, it's advisable to make tape recordings of their croaks. These can then be analysed at leisure back in the comfort of one's laboratory, attended by Mungo the disfigured factotum. It is not recommended to make recordings of any quacks which seem to have the decoy ducks as their source, as these are of course utterly fraudulent and many hours diligent lab time will be wasted as a result. If one has to pay rental for the laboratory space, this can be financially ruinous, thus comp compromising one's ability to resolve a sedge crisis in some instances fatally. Note that most common sedge crises can be dealt with quite effectively by the amateur and the whole thing should blow over within a week. Special patrol units dedicated to this type of work ought to be called in if the crisis lasts any longer. Telephone numbers for more than a dozen such teams can be found in the Directory of Sedge Crisis Resources available by mail order. Unfortunately, there are some imposters who prey on the naive and the credulous. Genuine crisis teams will always, always wear caps with ear flaps. As soon as possible after the sedge crisis has been dealt with, a full written report in the international standard format must be submitted to the authorities. This is a legal requirement, and failure to comply will result in criminal charges and deportation to a secret facility disguised as a cream cracker factory, where the malefactor will be poked at with forks and bashed on the head with a big iron utensil. I have a little blind dolly. She is stuffed with straw. I have not named her yet. I've only had her for half an hour. I found her on a patch of waste ground half an hour ago. I was out walking. I suppose I should say I was out limping because I limp when I walk. My left leg is shorter than my right leg on account of a mysterious childhood illness. I was limping along near the canal when I passed a patch of waste ground and saw the blind dolly stuffed with straw. She had been abandoned, possibly by some ungrateful infant. Ingratitude is the besetting sin of today's infants. That is my opinion, not shared by all. Rooting around on the waste ground, I noticed other things, including a pair of blue buttons. I think I can say with some confidence that they were made of Bakelite. I supposed that they may have been the eyes of my little blind dolly once upon a time. 
but they had become detached, perhaps when she was thrown with a certain amount of violence onto the patch of waste ground from the wound-down window of a Chevrolet passing at high speed, in the back seat of which an ungrateful infant was throwing a tantrum. That would fit the facts as I found them. I did think about sewing the buttons back on to my little blind dolly's cloth head about 25 minutes ago, but decided against doing so. She has been robbed of her sight, and I do not presume to play God. I have placed both buttons in my pocket, however, in case they come in handy for another purpose, a purpose which will be revealed to me at the due time. For the moment, I'm concerned with selecting a name for my little blind dolly. No doubt the ungrateful infant who tossed her aside had a name for her, but in 20,000 years I would be unable to guess what it was. It is not as if she has her name embroidered on the sole of her cloth foot. At home, I have a whole shelf full of books by Tony Buzan. They are all packed with tips to make better use of my brain, but not one of them tells me how to pronounce the author's name. Is it Buzan or is it Boozan? Until I find out, my little blind dolly will have to have two names. She will be Susan Boozan or Suzanne Buzan. I'm going to make a little black cape for her to wear, just like Tony Buzan's cape, only smaller, because she is not a living, breathing mind map maker, she is just my little blind dolly. I will find a small piece of cloth for the cape, and if it is not already black, I will have to dye it, or smear it all over with black boot polish. I have got more black boot polish than I know what to do with. I often think about that song by Jethro Tull, Dr. Bogenbroom, because I bought all the boot polish from a cobbler named Mr. Bogenbroom when he shut up his shop. He told me he was going to sea, but he did not say which sea he meant. It could have been the Baltic, the Red, or the Dead, or one of the other ones. I didn't ask him, because he was quite a frightening man, and in those days I did not have my little blind dolly to hide behind. But now I have, and nothing will ever frighten me again. Um, and I'd like to end today's show with one or possibly two quotations, um, more quotations from others. This is um, from a very old book by John Conrad Amman called The Talking Deaf Man. The human voice is air, impregnated and made sonorous by the impressed character of the life or is such as whilst it is in breathing forth, doth smite upon the organs of the voice, so as they tremble thereupon. 
for indeed, without this tremulous motion, no voice is made. Yea, not only the larynx or windpipe doth thereupon tremble, but the whole skull also. Yea, and sometimes all the bones of the whole body, which any one may easily find in himself by his applying his hand to his throat and laying it on the top of his head. So you can try that at home. See if you can, when you speak, you can make all the bones of your body tremble. I just tried it while I was reading that, and um, it works. That's all from Hooting Yard on the air for this week. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Um, remember, you can always visit the Hooting Yard website. The quickest way there is probably just to write Hooting Yard in Google. Um, it takes you straight to the page. And... Um, yeah, I'll leave you to it, and thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with more stuff. Bye-bye.